What are we going to do today? What are we going to do Wednesday? This week we are looking at the virtue that relates to this course, namely chastity. Um, Oddly, in parallel, what I've been doing in the other course I'm teaching at the moment, the Life in Christ course, we've been looking at the virtues and the passions. That's what I'm wanting to do with you in deeper depth, obviously, but now on Wednesday, to think about how, you know, we were talking in our last lecture about the ends, the, the goal that marriage and sexuality is directed towards. Well, within ourselves, that yearning, that movement, that drive, where does that end up? What's it aiming for? Both what should it aim for and when it goes wrong, what does it end up as? So we're looking at chastity. Um, So recapping what I guess you've hopefully done in course 501 and the course on the virtues. When you as a human being see something, there's a whole bunch of things within you that are triggered in reaction to whatever we contemplate. So you've got the basic, the threefold inclinations in you. Those give birth to the appetites. Those in turn in more detail give birth to the the passions all triggered in response to something we see. And that's the same movement um, that's when we've formed this correctly in the virtues, then the virtues form our passions so that they respond in a certain way, that they respond in the right way. Whereas if our habits have, you mean doing the wrong thing and doing the wrong thing repeatedly, we train our passions in the opposite way towards various vices. So what I'm wanting to do with you this morning and on Wednesday is looking at that movement. Um, And there are, what, 22 pages of notes there. We're not going to go through these in detail. but that movement. So the first thing I want to do today is to trace that movement of the concupiscible appetite. So this is one of the particular appetites, yeah. Literally meaning with desire. To trace that movement and see how that ends up either in a virtue or in a vice. Um, And then on Wednesday, we will shift our focus to the mechanism by which we grow in any virtue, and then with that, how we grow in chastity in particular. So is that the next two days kind of mapped out where we're going? Okay, so let's look to the lecture notes I've given you, starting on page one. So I asked the question at the top there, what are we seeking? I said, human nature possesses faculties that, from the more general to the more specific, move us to seek goods. 
So when we were talking about the ends of marriage, we were thinking with that of the, the goods that are achieved within marriage, of the union of the spouses, of, the, um, of offspring, of a remedy for concupiscence. So the natural inclinations, the appetites, the passions, the habituses, the plural of which is habitus, um, these move us two things. Whatever we're seeking, that is this latent thing. This, we exist in potency to respond and to be formed in response. So the passions and virtue, next little subheading. The movements of the sensitive appetites, which are the passions, they need regulating. The passions can either move us to apparent goods rather than real goods. So St. Thomas gives the example of seeking sex with another man's wife. So, you know, there is something desirable there. There is something the passions are moving towards. But that isn't a real good. The authentic good would be to recognise that that woman is married to another man. That what is desirable there has a proper focus context with the other man, but not with me. So that's not a real good, it's an apparent good. But because it doesn't look desirable, it can appear good and move me, move my passions towards it. But then my passions can also move me either too much or too little. So eating. You know, often we eat too much. That the thing I move towards in the food is a real good, but I moved too much towards it. That the brunch Sunday morning, it looked so good, I went up for a second. Um, and it is a real good, but out of measure. So here again, the passions can fail us in moving us too much or too little. And that's because of the residue of concupiscence within us. Concupiscence, in that sense, meaning the inclination in us from original sin. Um, I don't know how much you... So when St. Thomas uses the word concupiscence as the concupiscible appetite, he's not meaning sin, he's just literally meaning with desire but kind of since him in the tradition, we've used this word concupiscence to refer specifically to the inclination to sin in our passions. Yeah, is that sounding familiar? Okay, the second example I gave there, being sluggish in my pursuit of authentic recreation. So one of the virtues St. Thomas looks at is the virtues of games, you as a human being, you need to rest. You need to rest your body in sleep. You need to rest your soul in appropriate pleasures, in recreation. And sometimes we can be too sluggish in moving ourselves to that, too lazy even in recreation. And therefore we fail to be recreated and fail therefore to do the things we would have been able to do the next day if we'd restored ourselves today. So again, the passions can move us either to something that isn't really good or that is good but fail to move us enough or move us too much. So virtues. 
Virtues put right reason, as St. Thomas puts it, into the passions, habituating the passions to pursue authentic goods and to pursue them in right measure. And there are two types of passions of the sensible, uh, sensitive appetite. Uh, the concupiscible, with desire, which incline us to seek what is suitable according to the senses um, and to fly from what is hurtful. So it's either attraction or repulsion. Or the irascible, which resists the attacks that hinder what is suitable and inflict harm. So when I'm faced with a situation where there isn't an easy either moving to it or running from it, there's this other dynamic in the irascible passions that wells up within me to enable me to conquer. But that welling up can go wrong as well. So what we need, bottom heading there, is the virtuous mean. Not neither extreme in between, the virtuous mean. That the pleasures, sorts, and goods activate the passions. I said trigger them as a kind of more contemporary term you might use. Virtue causes the passions to be activated to correspond to the true good and right measure. Temperance is the virtue that moderates, forms the passions with respect to desire and pleasure. Abstinence does that with the sense of touch from eating. Chastity, the sense of touch pleasures with sex. And, you know, to repeat what you've heard before, every moral virtue lies between two vices. So that's a mean. The observance of reason in a particular matter and circumstance, that it's not halfway between the two vices, it varies with every virtue. So chastity, our virtue, so to speak, is between the extremes of lust and unfeelingness, prejudice. St. Thomas notes that unfeelingness is so rare that we hardly have a word for it. I that chastity is closer to unfeelingness than to lust. Now, he was an Italian, so I suspect Italians, this is such a rare thing in their manner that they don't have a word. In English, we do have a word for it. We call it being frigid. Um, that I think the manifestation of these things varies in every culture. Okay, so I'm going to skip the next page because I'm going to kind of talk through that with other things. Page three. Is, is everything I said on that page just repeating what you've heard before? Yeah, okay. So, page three um, the theological virtues. So, you know, the three theological virtues, faith, hope, and charity, these are the virtues that directly adhere us to God. I believe in him. I hope in him. I love him. And this is important because chastity finds its proper expression with respect to charity. So we need to think, before we think about chastity, about charity. So, charity is the final and unifying goal of all the strivings of the manifold human activities. It's 
union with God in divine charity. The appetites within us seek God, if we have this virtue. Charity resides in the will, the rational appetite, and fulfills it. The charity imbues all of the supernatural virtues and orders them to God. It unites us to God directly. Quoting St. Thomas, divine charity loves God as a friend loves a friend and loves others for reason of our love of God. Now, just a slight aside here. When you tell a man that he is to love his wife for love of God, people can think that means that the wife is an, a rival to the love of God. What it actually means is that it's a purifying of your love. So if you just think of your friends, if you, why do we love our friends? Well, usually we love our friends because there's something at a natural, effective level that we like about them. But that gets mixed in with selfishness, what they give back to me. Whereas if I love them for love of God, as God loves them, then I'm loving them purely in a disinterested way with the love of divine charity. So I'm not loving them less if I'm loving them for love of God. I'm actually loving them better, more purely. And as much as the love I have for my neighbor, for my friend, for my spouse, partakes of is for the love of God, then it is a sharing in divine charity. Charity being that love that is in God's very self, that if, when we partake of it, we are partaking of God himself. Next bullet point, charity loves him for his own sake, not for our own benefit. So the different saints package this slightly differently, but um, in St. Thomas, this is the difference between hope and love, charity. So that hope strives for God for what I gain from him, whereas love strives for him simply for him, for his sake. Now, um, mapping out where this leaves the striving of the concupiscible appetites. We need to point out where joy fits in this. So when we gain God, so to speak, when we have that union with him that all of this striving is directed towards, then there is a fruit of that. There's the fruit of joy. Rejoicing in the possession of God, the ultimate good. That the end of all human striving is thus achieved. Uh, I know the distinction between joy and delectatio. So the animals can enjoy pleasure, and we can enjoy pleasure, delectation. But the animals aren't capable of a spiritual joy a spiritual pleasure, which we are, the delight 
that comes from union with God that the angels can have. Angels can't have physical pleasure. We can. Animals can't have spiritual joy. We can. We can have both. And we can engage with the physical things at a spiritual level. Okay, next, a contemplative prayer. That's what makes us grow most readily in love. So when we look at virtue, the mechanism of growth and virtue on Wednesday, we'll look at that point again. Where sloth is the thing that opposes this most directly. Then I note for our course, chastity finds its proper context as part of this love of God. Chastity is in this sense supernatural, not just natural. The deepest motivation for chastity is our love of God, which directs us to use the sexual pleasures properly. So is the trajectory I'm mapping out here very clear? But contextualizing all of this in charity is pivotal for a proper understanding of chastity. Now, page four, I'm not going to go through with you, um, having spent a nice couple hours tidily summarizing everything on a page there. I've now decided um, not to go through that with you. But just to briefly make the point, in Latin, unlike in English, there are many different words for love. Um, but the love we're talking about in this context isn't just a physical affection, um, but that union with God, that sharing of the divine love of God himself. Now, what happens when this goes wrong? Well, it can go wrong in a number of ways. So one of the ways the striving goes wrong is in sloth. So instead of beholding the goodness of God and striving for him and rejoicing in him, I behold God and I think, boy, that's a lot of hard work. That to be a saint, to be united to him, that's hard work. And I feel sorrow. This, as St. Thomas maps it out, this is the virtue of sloth. So if you look at page five of my notes, um, go through what sloth is. So sloth, apathy, um, achadia, also in the tradition, so say here, joy comes with possession of the good that is God. It's proper to each specific virtue to rejoice in its own spiritual good, which consists in its own spiritual act. But it belongs especially to charity, to have that spiritual joy whereby one rejoices in the divine good. So paraphrase that to not take joy in a good thing, that's a bad thing. So that sloth is the mirror image of the joy of charity. 
Sloth said that spiritual sorrow in the face of spiritual goods, an oppressive sorrow that weighs on a man's mind and makes him want to do nothing. Therefore prevents us seeking the divine life um, and is therefore killing the life of grace. It's a mortal sin. Now I know a slothful person might be very active, but not active in the things of God. For us as future priests, this is a, a big thing to reflect on repeatedly, to examine ourselves repeatedly, that you can be that workaholic priest who is always on the go, always doing things, always at the next committee meeting, always even visiting the sick, but you're lost in your busyness. You're not doing it for him. You're not doing it in love of him. And that there's a sorrow in you in the midst of your busyness. So laziness in the spiritual things doesn't mean you're actually sitting around doing nothing. It can actually be present in us when we're hyper busy. So that obviously the solution to that is rectitude of intention to correct our motivation to do those same things for him. So I note that workaholics can curiously find time for extramarital affairs. Yes, you would think a man that busy wouldn't have time for it, but somehow he does. The last thing in that sloth section in bold there, so St. Thomas, I'm sure you remember, he maps out these daughters of the capital sins. Um, and the last of them is a wandering after unlawful things because you don't have pleasure in spiritual things. That those who find no joy in spiritual pleasures have recourse to the pleasures of the body instead. You need pleasure, that's how you've been structured, as we were looking at pleasure in our last session. So if you don't find it in God, you're gonna go grubbing around looking for it elsewhere. Okay, there's another type of sorrow in the face of good, and this is envy. But this is a sorrow with respect to our neighbor. Hey, look, there's no you in there. It's not correctly. Aren't I? Magnificent. Okay, so I'm supposed to look at God and rejoice at seeing him, rejoice at striving for union with him. Similarly, when I look at my neighbor and something good in him, I should rejoice for him in love. But it's possible instead to be sad. So that James looks at the fact that Emmanuel got that book and he didn't. And rather than rejoicing for him that he got the book, he feels a sorrow that you got the book and he didn't. And this is particularly envy. When we look at our neighbor getting something good and we feel sorrow about it, not joy. That if we love our neighbor, we rejoice with him in his good, even if he's got something I don't. So, 
again, a different form of this mirror imaging of joy, sorrow, union with God, union with the good. Page six. Now again, mapping out the difference between joys and sorrows, if you've not found your joy in God, then there's another way that can map out, and this is in lust and gluttony. There's a quote in St. Thomas with respect to... Um, Sloth, you don't find your joy in God, you feel sorrow with respect to the divine good, and so you wander after unlawful pleasures. And the two pleasures of touch relate in terms of sin, lust, and gluttony. So, page six there, lust. What is lust? Well, quoting the Catechism, Lust is disordered desire for or inordinate enjoyment of sexual pleasure. Sexual pleasure is morally disordered when it's sought for itself, isolated from its procreative and unitive purposes. So if you remember last session, we were looking at how God has ordered all the pleasures with the fulfillment of activities. Pleasure is a good thing, it's not a problem. But when we try to grab the pleasure without the good that it's a part of, then everything goes wrong. And in particular, if you've not found your pleasure in God, then the ordering of all those particular pleasures as they relate as a part of our ordering to him, then we end up with the particular vices, and in this case, the vice of lust, where we're seeking this particular pleasure, the pleasure of touch with respect to the things of sex, um, isolated from its proper purposes. Now, Peter Kreeft quotes St. Thomas, as I've quoted there, that lust is about the greatest of pleasures. And these absorb the mind more than others. I suspect that's Kreef paraphrasing St. Thomas. I've never found an exact place where he says that. I've footnoted a couple sources where he says fairly similar things. But I think a lot of commentators would kind of take this as a self-evident truth of human nature, that actually the desire for sexual pleasure is stronger than any other physical pleasure. Um, and so when that goes wrong, there's an awful lot that goes wrong in our life. So in itself, it's not the most important sin. Pride is the most important sin. But because the pleasure of sex is so strong, when that gets, goes wrong, there's a whole bunch of stuff around it that tends to go wrong as well. So that my drive for that pleasure might be accompanied with a pride that refuses to obey God's laws because I want that pleasure. And so, I, so that 
the strength of the pleasure has a ripple-on effect with all kinds of other vices. But, just to repeat the point, that doesn't mean it's the most serious sin. Pride is the most serious sin. So in our preaching and what we talk about, what we think about, lust isn't the most serious sin. I ask the question, why does the modern world, our world, seek lust? I seek it in a way more than other eras of history. And I paraphrase, because it has forgotten God. Man cannot live without joy. Therefore, when he is deprived of true spiritual joys, it is necessary that he become addicted to carnal pleasures. This is St. Thomas. Now, obviously, in Western Europe, where I've come from, um, we've forgotten God in a very explicit way. You know, in atheism, God is just completely not in the picture. This side of the Atlantic, the forgetting of God, I think, is more in the drowning out of consumerism. It's at a practical level, there's a forgetting of God, even though over here he is explicitly acknowledged but consumerism, it's very hard to, to still see him. And I put those in small print because I'm not going to go through them in detail, but St. Thomas maps out all of the different ways, either in the intellect or in the will, um, that when lust is within us, all of our different functionings are thrown out of kilter and each of these has a different vice in itself. Okay, page seven is the virtue of temperance. So temperance is the general category, obviously just recapping for you, the general category of virtue with respect to pleasures of touch. So there's the pleasures of touch in eating, pleasures of touch in sex. Um, what moderates, what puts reason into that striving? The virtue of temperance. And that temperance has two particular manifestations. Moderating our eating in the virtue of abstinence and moderating our attraction to the pleasures of sex in the virtue of chastity which takes us over the page to page 8. So we look at 8 and 9. We're going to look explicitly now for the rest of our morning lecture um, on chastity. And here what we're doing... So it's not just that there's all pleasures as vices, but here we have a virtue moderating our pleasures. Whether that's the virtue of chastity with sex or abstinence with respect to, to food. So the pleasures can be part of our experience of joy in God or they can be isolated from him in vices. A 
Okay, so page eight, chastity. So I start by noting that we can use this word in both a negative and a positive way. So negatively, as training with respect to a problematic desire. So in this sense, chastity concerns the specific pleasures relating to sexual intercourse. And according to St. Thomas, chastity receives its name because reason chastises concupiscence, which, like a child, needs curbing. And it's part of temperance because it restrains. But positively, and if we look at the catechism, this is very much the context in which it's packaged in, it forms sexuality for self-gift, for love. So yes, it is a chastising, a restraining, but for that goal, that's what chastity looks like. Okay, next I'm just kind of stating the obvious. What is chastity about? It concerns sexuality, that different virtues perfect the different aspects of our human nature. Um, Daniel, would you mind reading the next block from the Catechism? Different virtues perfect different aspects of our human nature. Sexuality affects all aspects of the human person and the unity of his body and soul. It especially concerns affectivity, the capacity to love and procreate, and in a more general way, the aptitude for forming bonds of communion with others. Chastity means the successful integration of sexuality within the person, and thus the inner unity of man in his bodily and spiritual being. Sexuality, in which man's belonging to the bodily and biological world is expressed, becomes personal and truly human when it is integrated into the relationship of one person to another in a complete and lifelong mutual gift of a man and woman. The virtue of chastity therefore involves the integrity of the person and the integrality of the gift. Okay, and then taking a step back, but also integrating back with where we started, chastity and divine charity. So all virtue finds its fullest form in being ordered to love of God. According to the Catechism, charity is the form of all the virtues, that under its influence, chastity in particular, appears as a school of the gift of the person. So, you know, all of the different individual virtues, they obviously look slightly different in terms of what charity does to them. Well, it's saying here, chastity, what does that look like? It looks like a school, a training for the gift of the person. So that this yearning within me for the pleasure of sex, chastity makes that into a gift to the person. Um, now, I footnoted there an article that you can get on the internet if you want on um, the relationship between charity and chastity uh, by John Harvey. Um, uh, Jacob, could you read the first bullet point quote there in regards to? In regard to the virtue of chastity, moreover, 
The question may be posed, what elements make chastity stronger? Is it the mere repetition of natural acts of modesty and of emotional self-control? Or is it a dynamically growing motivation of supernatural charity? Granted that both factors are important, which is basic, the positive motivation of charity is more basic to the practice of chastity than the practice of various natural safeguards. Indeed, charity is the best incentive for the repetition of acts of modesty, of moderation in the use of food and drink, and of the various other practices necessary for the preservation and growth of chastity. Uh, and Deacon Joseph, could you read the next one? <coughs> Under the influence of charity, chastity increases more in intrinsic facility than in, in extrinsic facility. To some extent, repeated acts of multiplication senses and of the imagination render the practice of chastity easier, but not easy. To a greater extent, chastity draws strength from frequent acts of love of God. The extrinsic form of charity is most apparent in use of chastity. In short, meditation on the motives for, chast for chastity joined to the practice of multiplication um, so obviously I'm quoting bits out of an article there, but you see the question he's posing, he's saying, you want to grow in chastity. What is it of all the different things you could do that would most make you grow in chastity? <coughs> well, he's saying it's growing in <coughs> love that makes you grow in chastity. So all those bits of the tools of chastity, they only work if they're done in love of God. So to mortify my flesh, to deny myself pleasure, to, to fast for love of God, these things train chastity. But if they're not done for love of God, then they kind of don't have that unifying character. In converses, we look back to how I've mapped it out here. If you've got this divine charity, if you've got your joy in God, then it just is much easier to find your other pleasures in relationship to him as well. And obviously for us as celibates, you know, if I don't have my joy in him, it's very hard to not be attracted to the distracting pleasures. Whereas if I have him, and I have my joy in him, then there's a kind of calming on my other strivings. This enables me to, in a sense, comfortably put them aside. Yes, so, you know, in every virtue, there's the two extremes, deficiency and excess, and the virtuous meaning is in between. Um, and so for each individual virtue, where the mean is varies with the different virtues. But also, because virtue is always about an individual acting, it varies with the individual. And for our context, varies with your state of life that you're called to. So what's the right measure for frequency of enjoying the pleasure of sex? Zero. <laughs> yeah. Um, so for, for, that's the right measure. Um, so 
you know, that's um, <laughs> and that can therefore make packaging of this as a positive thing almost seem bizarre unless we are clear about the proper context of it all as being an expression of that union with God that love of God and therefore with that joy that comes Okay, that kind of takes us on to the next bit of the page there at the bottom. Chastity and self-gift. So sexuality, just kind of in all its expressions, both good and bad, it just makes us look outside, because that's why we're looking for the pleasure. Um, but authentic sexuality orients us outside in love, not in self-seeking, not in grabbing pleasures for myself. So top of page nine. Um, obviously I'm paraphrasing here from the catechism. So the catechism's got a little section on this. Um, the different states of life, self-gift looks different in those different states of life. Chastity looks different in those different states of life. But the catechism is using this image of self-gift to describe chastity in those different so for the married, training and chastity frees them to give themselves to their spouse. <coughs> that self-mastery prevents selfishness and sexual pleasure. Affectivity becomes ordered towards the other in all its bodily and affective forms. Sexuality becomes ordered to love in accordance with the authentic inner dynamic of what bodily love is about. So if I'm going to give my body to my wife, give myself to my wife, I need that training, that discipline, that forming, so that I give myself both freely, but give myself in a way that isn't about me, but about us, so that the mutual self-gift. So that takes training, but that's what it's about. It's about something positive, this mutual self-gift. Now for the celibate, training in chastity frees them to love God with an undivided heart. That sexuality enables self-gift in giving this precious aspect of himself to God. And we have the image in the book of Revelation. These are they who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. The 144,000 virgins, they follow the Lamb wherever he goes. And they can only do that because they don't have the encumbrances of house, wife, children. Um, they follow the Lamb wherever he goes with an undivided heart. A mystical marriage in this context. So the celibate, in a certain sense, is married to God. And if a male, he shares um, in what is actually more directly applicable to religious, female religious. So, you know, obviously the tradition talks a lot, so that, you know, female religious will often have a, a wedding ring symbolizing their mystical marriage to God. 
Well, as a man, that would, because we don't do same-sex marriage, that would be a bit, <laughs> be a bit, be a bit weird. Um, but actually, we are partaking in that relationship as well, but the, with a, a, a slight shifting of the symbolism. The celibate priest shares in Christ's marriage to his church. So, um, as I'm sure you're aware from other courses, that John Paul II in Pastoral Stub of Obis, it's the biggest kind of recent articulation of this, that you as a celibate priest, you share in Christ's spousal relationship to his people. You are conformed to him, the head. He is married to his bride. You are also married to that bride. And you're free in the self-gift of chastity to give yourself to your bride. But you're only going to be free to do that if you've trained your passions to somehow be content with the, the zero in terms of the, the, the physical expression of that. But that all of that self-gift, whether it's in the sense of sacrifice or in the sense of, of love, um, that's what it's oriented to, that we, by union with Jesus, we're, we're sharing in that. I think the, uh, the, when you're talking about this, the imagery that's been used by a lot of the fathers and a lot of the spiritual writers uh, to describe priests and even male religious as friend of the bridegroom. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, I guess, could you say... I don't know, maybe a little more about that, like how would that kind of translate into what you're saying? Because like women religious, you're right, they're brides of Christ, but then <coughs> traditional imagery is that male religious are friends of the bridegroom. You're right, so there's been a lot, a lot of recent scholarship focusing on that image. So when John the Baptist says he is the friend of the bridegroom, um, and this image of the sandal, untying the sandal, that that's actually what the, the best man would have done at a wedding. Um, so I'm not sure directly connecting it here. Sometimes different symbolism doesn't all match up. Because um, the friend of the bridegroom wouldn't, wouldn't be married to the bride. Right. <laughs> by definition whereas we actually are married to the bride by union with Jesus um, so I think I'd say in, in this context that wouldn't be a, a useful okay. image and sometimes she's a beautiful bride and sometimes she's pretty ugly and pretty nasty um, but she's always our bride Okay, the last thing I want to do this morning before we talk about the text you read was just a little bit on training in chastity there. We'll look at this in more detail on Wednesday. Um, but here I've pulled together in a string of bullet points stuff from St. Thomas and primarily from the Catechism. So this is a process and the Catechism calls it a battle, has the whole section called the battle for purity. It isn't easy. 
Um, Self-mastery is a long and exacting work. One should never consider it acquired once and for all. It presupposes renewed effort at all stages of life. Chastity has laws of growth which progress through stages marked by imperfection and too often by sin. It's not just a steady increase in improvement. Chastity involves self-mastery, training for human freedom, that a person governed by his passions is at war with himself and his passions, or is it a person who governs his passions is at peace. Because I'm at peace, because I'm master of myself, and then free to give myself. It involves self-knowledge. So if I don't know myself, if I don't know how I act, how I respond to different situations, if I don't know that, you know, maybe I've got a friend and he can go to the beach and he can see a woman in a bikini and it doesn't have the reaction on him that it has on me, that maybe for him going to the beach is not the issue that it might be for me. That self-knowledge to know how I respond to different things, not just looking at, well, other people do and other people say self-knowledge, how I respond, how I deal, how I win, how I lose. The practice of asceticism. Um, so, you know, asceticism is that broad term that is, loosely speaking, all those tools that aren't just prayer and mystical union. So fasting, St. Thomas says, fasting bridles the passions, just generally speaking. Mortification of the imagination. So we have to mortify, kill within our thinking those images that are impure, those images, those trains of thought that head us towards impurity. Mortifying the flesh. So all in the tradition of those different forms of uh, bodily, corporal mortification of penances, they're all ordered towards training ourselves to not live for pleasure, to not live for comfort. And the eyes, training in custody of the, the eyes. Catechism says obedience to the commandments, exercise of the moral virtues, so obviously moral implying to support the infused virtues fidelity to prayer so you know again if we're not finding our joy in God in prayer it's going to be hard to, to live all the rest of this and meditation on the motives for chastity so part of what keeps me going is remembering what chastity is remembering the beauty of chastity so if chastity I only ever experience as a daily struggle and I never remind myself of, of the beauty of this, of the gift of this, it's going to be hard. And then lastly, there on the page, it's a moral virtue, but it's also a gift from God, a grace. And that means you need to pray for it with intercession. So when we struggle to be chaste, pray for the gift. Um, pray for an increase in the gift.
Okay, before we look at the material there, actually I'm going to do one more little aside, another, just I want to reinforce the point about there being pleasures that help us here. So it's not just the pleasures of the vices. Um, so St. Thomas has the virtue of, um, depending which translation you read, of play or of games. So, as we looked at last week when we were thinking about pleasures, you need pleasure. You have been built to need sleep for your body. Your soul needs to rest in pleasures. And there's a whole virtue of a type of pleasure that he calls games, by which we recreate ourselves. Um, and if we deny ourselves of that, we're going to be more prone to striving after illicit pleasures. We should be seeking these pleasures that are part of our human structuring in union with, ordered towards that love of God and that joy in him. So the priest who never takes a day off, you know, that usually doesn't end well. You can take a day off in a selfish manner. This is my day. This is time for me. Um, when, you know, so there are priests who take a day off and they don't say mass that day. Don't do the breviary that day. Don't do the mental prayer that day. It's my day. Um, well, obviously that's not an experience of, of play and recreation that is part of our love of God and our experience of joy in but we do need it. And I'm making that point because the pleasures aren't a problem in themselves. They just need to be ordered, regulated, moderated, structured as part of our union um, in the divine good and the joy that comes in.